This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today we're speaking with Roy Christopher, who's the author of Dead Precedence, How Hip-Hop Defines the Future. Welcome, Roy. Good to be here. So the very first sentence of your on the back cover of your book claims that hip-hop invented the 21st century. How so? The premise of this book is that the cultural practices of hip-hop are the cultural practices of the 21st century. And so I basically just try to go through and pull that apart, go through and find, start with hip-hop and find all of the kind of cultural practices from sampling and illusion use to repurposing of technology to the removal of history that we all currently live in now and kind of try to map it from there to here. And it's interesting because you join hip-hop and cyberpunk at the hip culturally. I find that pretty wild. Can you explain that? As I was looking back at the kind of origins of hip-hop, well, the origins, but also more of its like kind of break into the mass mind throughout the 80s, there were all these correspondences between that and, and cyberpunk because cyberpunk started breaking through about the same time in the early 80s. A lot of what cyberpunk was trying to do with its breaking from its larger genre and its larger culture, hip-hop was also trying to do, maybe not consciously, but there was a lot of parallels between the two there. In order to make this argument about hip-hop in the future, I used something else that was looking at the future that was also evolving around the same time. So it was a way for me to make the same argument, but also connect it to another kind of cultural force that was happening at the same time. Right, and there are connections. Um, And I wasn't the first to make that connection. There were other people, obviously, that I quote in the book and talk about that that already made a connection between not only cyberpunk, but science fiction and hip-hop, or Afrofuturism, or African culture, or African-American culture, and science fiction in general. Uh, You note, interestingly, that punk, cyberpunk, and hip-hop are all movements of malcontents. It just seems to me that all of these movements were started by groups of people who were fed up with what was going on in their movements at the time even if those larger movements were also rebelling against movements larger than that, right? Because punk, you know, was rebelling against the rock of the time. Cyberpunk is rebelling against the science fiction of the time. And then hip-hop is like, if you ask anyone in the early, early days, there was a big contention between disco and hip-hop. But then if you look back at, like, anybody who is kind of out for the bring down of rock, music, you know, as a monolithic kind of thing, hip-hop has done the best to kind of deconstruct that. All of these movements to me just had this kind of very rebellious spirit, and that's how I connected them. And you're sort of saying there that punk rock is now also considered dad rock. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of the evolution of these things, right? It's like a treadmill. One thing rebels against the thing before it, and then it becomes the thing before it, right? I remember in the early 90s, people were talking about hip-hop being the punk rock of the 90s. And of course, now there's this super nostalgic 90s hip-hop movement, and there's a whole new hip-hop thing that's rebelling against that. So it's always this kind of treadmill. But I was looking at a pretty specific span of time, which was from you know the late 70s, where punk was taking hold, but also where 
cyberpunk and hip hop were starting. And then from there to the 21st century, that span of time is what I was looking at. I don't really get into 21st century hip hop itself much. Right, right. You pull in several authors and their works for influencing cyberpunk, and perhaps most famously is William Gibson. So what do you think is the connection there? Gibson is interesting because he he would probably say, and, and a lot of people would agree, that he's the farthest thing from hip-hop that you could possibly think of. But he he talked a lot about writing, not trying to emulate his science fiction forebears, but trying to emulate rock stars and trying to emulate you know the Velvet Underground and Joy Division and these kinds of things. There's a lot of allusions in his work to the music. And so the music, Mark Deary pointed this out. I think I quoted him about this, where he points out that the allusions to the music become this kind of key or this password to understanding the texts. And there's so much of that in hip hop. And so that kind of idea of referencing something that's not related is very heavy in hip hop. It's heavy, in, again, in lots of 21st century culture, if you look at any TV show or any movie or Tarantino or Family Guy, or there's this constant referencing of things. And so if you don't know the reference, then you don't get it. And so there's a lot of that in Gibson. And then again, there's a lot of that in hip hop and hip hop referencing itself and referencing things outside it. And it's just so rich with all of these different references. And that was one of the connections that I made with Gibson, the way he talks about cities and the way he talks about the future of the ghettoized planet and all of these different things are, could all be also be related to the way I was using cyberpunk to talk about hip hop. But it was mainly that. He talks about dire straits being very subversive. <laughs> and then also just the referencing of, you know, Joy Division and Velvet Underground and stuff in his stories reminded me a lot of the way that hip hop artists reference things to make this new level of meaning. It's funny because Illusions, which you refer to a lot, there's a chapter of it. You know, basically, I guess it's kind of a coded language. Right. You could probably trace that back to 30s, 40s, definitely 50s jazz, too. Yes, you could follow a lot of this stuff back to a lot of people. And I even mentioned this in the book that a lot of scholars go back to Dada and the surrealists and mm. different cut up methods that they saw bef before that were happening before hip hop. And, you know, hip hop is not looking at any of those things for inspiration. And so I was trying to avoid doing that, but I still am doing it by kind of retrofitting a lot of things from now and, and saying, you know, looking at hip hop to find them. I first noticed those references in hip hop before I even really knew, you know, even thought about allusions or knew what they were. And I, I had a professor tell me, you're talking about allusions. And so I ended up doing my dissertation on the use of allusion in hip hop. And so that's a part of that chapter about lyricism. I specifically talk about allusion. People talk about intertextuality and how all this different media and hip hop and music and all this different stuff is intertextual, but that doesn't really help us understand it just to know that it's intertextual. So I was looking for something more granular to get to the pieces of it. And so if you point out an allusion, that's something you can talk about. It's something more tangible. Well, and it's interesting that there is a broad historical base for that that's just kind of reinterpreted through, you know, the newest art form of the day, which, you know, is, is a fascinating thing to me. Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, I'm in communication is the discipline that I, I'm in communication studies. And allusion is typically studied in theology and in especially literature. But in communication, there's, there are very, very few studies of allusion use in media and in communication studies. And so that was one of the places, one of the things that I had was this wide open field of being able to apply the ideas of allusion to all of this new media because there, there aren't very many people using that term to talk about those things. And especially in hip hop, you will rarely see the term in anything that studies hip hop. And I think it's one of the main, I mean, I, in that chapter, I talk about 
a very few things, rhythm, rhyme, and illusion, and I don't know, maybe one other one, but it's only, it's one of the very few things I think it helps you understand like a large section of what's going on in the music. Definitely. And I want to revisit that uh, in, a, in a larger sense, but uh, you just mentioned like communication and you write that hip hop was a product of the African diaspora and is a patchwork of the past. That's a really interesting explanation. Yeah, the, there are lots of pockets of hip hop that have come out of this that I don't talk about at all. There's a large, you know, in, in other countries and other areas of the world where the diaspora has spread, um, where other versions of these things have grown. And hip hop is, you know, largely considered American based subculture but it comes from Jamaica and other places, and it kind of germinated here. So that kind of cultural dis disjointedness that comes from um, Chattel slavery and the diaspora also happens within the music because the music started off as just people trying to have parties and using records and then you know, going from using records to rock a party to making their own compositions out of other records instead of playing instruments. And so there's this disjointed kind of patchwork, pastiche, collage, as far as like the patchwork of the past, you know, you mentioned DJ Cool Herc, who's, you know, generally recognized, at least in the States, as kind of the father of hip hop. But obviously, uh, you mentioned Jamaica and going back to those Studio One DJs, who I'm a huge, huge fan of. There is that patchwork, right, of the past. It moved forward in a lot of ways. Right. And there were, there were a lot of influential people. Grandmaster Flash, for instance, you call him hip hop's first hacker and its first cyberpunk. Again, that's me retrofitting, but he was the first one, you know, Cool Herc had the sound system and he came from Jamaica and he brought all of that culture with him. And then Africa Mambata is known for having all the records. He had all the records. He and Jazzy J just had like every record. But then Grandmaster Flash, who was like trying to set himself apart from this kind of growing scene of DJs, started figuring out how to do all of this weird stuff with the turntable with mixing these things together. And, you know, what he called his quick mix theories. He was actually composing these things using not just blending or extending breaks, but like actually mixing things together into new compositions. He had put a, a switch himself on his mixer. He had hacked his mixer and put a switch on it so that he could hear what was going on in the turntables before the crowd would hear it. So he had like a queuing system he built into his mixer. And then he was able to adjust things so that he could kind of edit what he was doing before it got out to the crowd like no one had done before. And so that's that's kind of why I, I said that he was hacker. It's kind of his first cyberpunk. You say that about anybody who was doing DJing or hip hop at the time. Bambada is definitely definitely like a forward thinking cyberpunk kind of dude. But uh, I would concentrate on Grandmaster Flash because he really invented a lot of those like turntable styles that moved DJs from playing records to playing turntables. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important, you know, for some of our listeners and for some of us all that to put this into context, this is probably mid to late 70s, I would guess. Is that about right? Yes, somewhere in there, yeah. You know, a lot of people are like, what's the big deal? I do that on my phone all the time. And, um, <laughs> you know, if you look back, and, and I did, I saw Grandmaster Flash here in Boston in like 1982, I think. And it, it was like nothing I've ever seen, you know, because there are no instruments traditionally on the stage. And it was incredible, you know, and you mentioned Africa Bombada's Planet Rock. That was another one. Those were two records that a wide audience started to listen to. <laughs> I was just going to say those two records, the Planet Rock and Grandmaster Flash's first kind of cut up record, His Adventures on the Wheel of Steel, as that's kind of those two records. You can, you can extrapolate a lot of what happened with hip hop music, not with lyricism, but with like sampling and DJing or whatever from those two records. They're like a blueprint to so many things that I talk about in the book. 
Absolutely. And astonishingly, Africa Bent Bombada's Planet Rock sampled Kraftwerk, which, you know, is the German ambient band, I guess. And the founder just passed away this past week. But, th- you know, that's incredible when you look at the time frame. And also, you know, this is a very new black music and they're sampling German instrumental music. Yeah, Bombada said that he noticed people getting down during that song. And that's when he decided he, he was going to sample it. So he used that true kind of like DJ ear and DJ eye of watching what the crowd was responding to in order to decide what to sample. You know, I was stunned that you found a precursor to all of this dating back to 1956 for sampling, right? Oh, yes. This, <laughs> this is one of those weird things that there are all these weird connections that happened while I was writing the book that I didn't have in mind beforehand that just popped up while the writing was happening, which I guess that happens to everybody who writes a a book-length kind of exploration. But there's this whole part in one of the chapters about alien abduction and aliens and UFOs and whatever. And then I find this song that was the first song to be built out of samples that made the Billboard charts from 1956, and it's called Flying Saucer. So that that was a really bizarre thing for those things to connect like that. Definitely. And, you know, the other thing is obviously commercially, people notice those hooks. You know, the 1987 song by Run DMC, It's Tricky, was crafted from two pop hooks, the guitars from The Knack's My Sharona, which was a huge hit, as was the chorus from Mickey Bassel's Mickey. It's funny because, I mean, that's part of the kind of heritage of hip hop is using records to make records and to using other music to make something new. But then there's also that tenet of if you rip off anyone's style, then you're cut out of it. And so there's this weird tension between the two. And I use highfalutin philosophy of science to talk about this, but it's what Thomas Kuhn called the essential tension between tradition and innovation. And so if you do something that's too traditional, <laughs> I like Puffy and everything, but I always think about him because he would sample in the late 90s, he would sample things that he knew were going to be hits because they'd already been hits and he would pay the clearance fees or whatever. A lot of times that was considered too traditional. You're not adding anything to it. And then if you do something too innovative and you go way too far out, then people will say you're not doing hip hop anymore, right? So you have to go somewhere in between. You have to build on what's there, but you have to make something new out of it. You know, no one would say that It's Tricky isn't a new song. It's definitely a new song, but it has these recognizable elements in it. So it's like they're taking the things that have been there, but they've definitely made something new out of it. Yeah, and, you know, as somebody who liked that first wave with the sampling, because it was a hook that you were familiar with, and like you mentioned, it was a new song. But the artists, you know, they felt they were ripped off, and the Knack weren't so happy with that, and they sued... um, Run DMC like 20 years later. In your book, producer and DJ Juice Alim says that hip-hop is hacking. Is is that an example of that? You know, hacking in its original sense was about creating new solutions or creating new things out of what you had. And that's, you know, how hip-hop got started was building something with limited resources. And so there's definitely, again, another connection or correspondence between these two things. Hip-hop, making something out of nothing, this is the well-worn phrase there, but also hacking, right? The computer hacking or wherever you want to draw that term from. There's a connection between those two things. Yes, building something out of these pieces of the past is definitely, I would say it's hacking. And I mentioned this in the book about, about it's tricky is that I always thought that the Tony Basil part was the most recognizable part of that song, but they got sued for the guitar part, right? which is, was really strange. And there's no precedent. This is another dead precedent. There's another, there's no precedent for these for these sampling cases because 
Kraftwerk sued and lost two different cases on one of their songs. And then the Knack won their case against Run DMC for the same thing. Right. right. And to be clear, in your book, hacking isn't really presented as a bad word. And it's portrayed as, as noble or, or maybe democratic in, in a way, in the way that it's creating these pieces of art. I, I mean, I use the term both ways in different places in the book, but that part, definitely the hip hop part of it is mostly using what's there to make something new. Speaking of making things new, let's move into the concept of cyberpunk and particularly Blade Runner is a movie that features throughout. And that might be one of the first, especially hugely successful ones. And there's a lot of concepts there. And one of them that's really fascinating, you write that memory and identity are inextricably bound. There are lots of examples of this in Blade Runner. The replicants are really kind of obsessed with photographs because they're like these totems to their past. You know, we find out in the movie that they don't really have pasts, that they've been implanted with these pasts. That that's the only connection they have to who they think they are, because you can't really know who you are without a without a memory. And if you if you find out that something you thought was a certain way in your past is different, it kind of changes who you thought you were. So again, Blade Runner is not the only movie to explore this, but it does it in a really interesting way because the replicants or the, you know, robots, androids, whatever you want to call them, a version of those things that exist in science fiction all over the place. That's how they know who they are is through these implanted memories and this connection with this past that they don't really have. The connection that I made with rap music is, is the idea of the sample and these memories that are being repeated and trying to remember where things originally came from and how that with the kind of media world that we live in now it's hard to even sometimes it's hard to even find where something came from you'll see on social media people posting things and asking where it came from because nobody seems to know where this stuff comes from and so there's this disjointedness between the origins of things and where the memories come from and then i'll get a song stuck in my head and not know where it came from find it and then find out that it's a cover of something or there needs to be a name for that like medianesia or something <laughs> where <laughs> you're trying to you know, we get so immersed in this world of media, it plays with your memory. That's the kind of connection I was making there. And you know what? And this gets back to, I want to make sure you're okay. You're not being attacked by cyber birds or anything. I don't know. Is there a bird in the house? There was a bird outside. Oh my God, it was so loud. Okay. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that, that I found was super interesting is, is, you know, this overlap of memory and identity are deeply rooted in all music. Yes. You know, getting to the point of illusion, which you had made earlier, is particularly so in rap music because it's so community-based, like shared experiences. There's this idea of shared identity, but there's also this this idea of, of being able to send messages to certain groups and not other groups. And again, this goes back to the use of illusion. If you allude to something or you make a reference to something and part of the audience gets it, you've created this in crowd or this in group that's in on the joke or in on the reference. And there's another whole part, you know, people who aren't in that group who either didn't get it or even didn't even notice this idea, this connection between allusion and these shared memories also that hip hop plays with a lot in the lyrics. And then the samples as well. I mean, several different people can listen to It's Tricky and some people might not get the Tony Basil, but they do get the knack, right? So it depends on your frame of reference. I'm going to jump ahead in the script because there's a part that fits into this really well. So there was a really insightful quote from sociologist and author Trisha Rose about, quote, how graffiti artists hijack the subways and use their power to distribute their art. And then she went further to say that rappers, quote, hijacked the market for their own purposes. Isn't that sort of on this tip? And can you expand on that a little bit? 
Yeah, I think that's a, those are two more really good examples of where hip hop is hacking things, right? Another thing about hacking, and this, this goes to both definitions, the building things or coming up with solutions for things and also breaking into things, but there's this concept of not asking for permission, right? Just doing things and going and getting it done. All those people who started this whole culture had asked for permission, then it would have started a lot later or it wouldn't have started at all. That's one of the things that graffiti artists did is they put their, they just put their art out there. So they didn't ask to get in. They didn't uh, submit their work for review or didn't try to get permission to get into galleries. They made their own. And an illuminating piece in your book is is learning how the graffiti tags were comparable to the branding of these huge companies. The artists were thinking, how big can I make it? How clever can I be? One difference, according to the artist in a 1983 documentary, Style Wars, is that they didn't believe it was necessarily for everyone's consumption. It was for other graffiti writers and the other people who don't write, they're excluded. Isn't that trying to have it both ways? Kind of, but it's also... It's kind of true as well. If you you ask anyone in any big city about graffiti, and they you know you might get a mild complaint, but most people just don't notice it. It's it's everywhere, and it doesn't doesn't signify anything to anyone unless you're a part of the culture. They're trying to make these names as big as possible within their own kind of group of people, right? They're not really trying to cross over into anyone else's consciousness. Yeah, getting seen is huge, and that's what they want. It's only so you can have bragging rights. There's this contextual thing between those two, right? Like going back to hackers, the hackers that actually break into things, right? Mm -hmm. A hacker actually breaks into systems, wants to be able to claim that work within their group of hacker community friends, but not to the FBI, for instance, <laughs> right? So you want to be big in one context, but not known in the other context. Right, right. So that's exactly what graffiti artists want, right? You want to be huge in the graffiti world, but then you don't want anybody of authority to know that you were the one who did that. <laughs> So it is having it both ways, but it's also like, it's a contextual kind of thing. Well, I mean, it's absolutely future forward facing in the sense that that's exactly what big companies are doing today. And it's exactly what some of the biggest names in rap were doing. Uh, you mentioned a favorite story of yours about Jay-Z and Notorious B.I.G. working on a duet, writing the song. Can you share that? <laughs> yeah, that's a, it was a, it was in a source magazine it was from the 90s. They were in the studio together, Jay-Z and Biggie. The beat was playing, Brooklyn's Finest, which I believe DJ Premier produced. They were sitting in the studio and a lot of a lot of rappers will listen to a beat before they write down their lyrics. They'll write to the beat. They do the writing on the spot. These guys, they're widely known for not writing their lyrics down. They rehearse everything in their head and they just go in and do it in the booth. They were both sitting there listening to this beat. There was a pad and pen on the table between them. And they kept pushing it back and forth between each other, expecting the other one to start writing their rhymes down. And that's when they realized that neither of them write their rhymes. They didn't know that about each other. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So one of the, maybe the central points of, of your thesis is Afrofuturism. Can you explain that concept to our listeners? Um, yes, Afrofuturism is a kind of a movement in literature and fashion and movies and comics and all kinds of different media that its roots are in things like George Clinton and Sun Ra and Octavia Butler, lots of different cultural forebears. But the the idea was, and this comes from Richard Pryor had a joke about the movie Logan's Run, which came out in 1975. He noted that there were no black people in this movie. And he said, I guess they're not expecting us to be here. We need to make our own movies. So we will be represented. And so Richard Pryor was joking, but as Richard Pryor often did, he had a very sharp point to make. And then Sun Ra would say this live. He would mention the same fact. And so that's, to me, is the core idea of Afrofuturism is the that a lots of science fiction and lots of speculative fictions were not representing African-Americans. They were not representing Africans. They were not representing Black people or people of color at all. And so the, the idea is that we will make our own. We will create this future. And so in talking about hip-hop defining the future and hip-hop being Black culture, connecting that with cyberpunk, which you know some people would argue is a ridiculous connection to make because cyberpunk is not, doesn't have anything to do with that. But the overlap of those two is definitely Afrofuturistic. So I had to talk about that. And Ramel Z, you mentioned he is a huge presence in your book. And I first heard of him via Big Audio Dynamite's 1986 on Come On Every Beatbox, where they pay him homage. And, you know, he was a visual artist, a graffiti pioneer, a fine art painter, performance artist, of course, a hip-hop rapper. In doing some research after reading your book, I mean, this guy's had MoMA exhibits, and he's passed away. But he is starting to get a lot of worldwide recognition for what he contributed. Yeah, it's it's too bad he didn't get this when he was around. I have a new interview collection coming out. It's being edited right now. It's or it's at the press right now that has one of the last interviews with him in it. He deserved to get this recognition while he was around so he could see it, but also he still just deserves kind of retroactively documentaries and books. And he had the big Red Bull Academy retrospective um, year before last, especially after doing all the research that I did for this book. I really do wish he got a lot more attention. Well, it's like Sun Ra. He didn't get a lot of attention at least for his music, he was an out there dude. And, uh, you know, I find so many people now that they're just so into him. And I know a little bit about him, but not a ton. You know, in, in a specific moment of past becoming present, Public Enemies Chuck D compared the early Bomb Squad jam sessions to someone specifically like Sun Ra. Yeah, that quotation that I pulled out, I pulled out specifically because he mentioned Sun Ra. I would not have thought of that the way that they jammed because... He and Chuck both talk about those sessions where they would somebody would be on a sampler, someone would be on turntables, someone else would be playing 
tapes and they would just do these wild collages of things. And they were actually, they were jamming. They just, they weren't playing what traditional instruments. They were playing all this equipment. Chuck mentioned that it, it might have sounded like something that Sun Ra would put together because he was wildly experimental as well. And his sessions like that probably didn't seem tra like traditional jazz jam sessions either. Right. Well, I mean, you could tie that even to the entire bebop movement, I think, you know, and then just having this discussion, I'm rolling through my head, you know, some of that really, really out there bop music. And then you've got this stuff with the bomb squad, you know, and there, there is a much more direct connection, I think, than most people might think. You also tie horror core to rap music. That one, can you explain? <laughs> well, horror core is a very small subgenre of rap music. Things like the Gravediggers and the Flatliners, which was a mid-90s kind of thing. The Gravediggers said that gangster rap was kind of, had already kind of gone as far as it could go with the extremities. And so they decided to bring in all of this horror movie stuff. I was connecting kind of Ramel Z's idea of the gothic. He talks about how graffiti artists had come from the monks because the monks had gotten in trouble for embellishing the, the alphabet and had gotten banished. And he was not into Afrofuturism. He said... You called me an Afrofuturist, but I am of the Gothics. And so I did all this research about different movements within Gothic culture and Gothic history. And there's a lot of kind of connections with collage and pastiche and bringing things together. And also there's that, that kind of darkness. So it was, it was another one of those things where I was trying to connect parts of hip hop to this other thing. Within hip hop, the closest thing you get to a Gothic thing is this horror horror idea. It pops up again every once in a while, like Nicki Minaj's verse on the very dark song Monster by Kanye West. Tyler the Creator and Odd Future were tagged with this horror core thing because of the darkness that they talk about. And they, there's this deep kind of undercurrent that pops up every once in a while that's this just a really, really dark kind of strain of hip hop. So it's the death metal of hip hop. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> very much. We're speaking with Roy Christopher, who's the author of a book called Dead Precedence how hip-hop defines the future. We've talked a lot about jazz and bebop and science fiction and black futurism and all this crazy stuff. At the 2011 Coachella Music Festival, Tupac Shakur retakes the stage in a very sci-fi movie kind of way. Yeah, that was, that, uh, that was wild. I've only, I only saw the YouTube clips of it, but even watching that, I mean, you can watch, if you watch the crowd in those clips, nobody had any idea that this was going to happen. He comes out there and it's it's clear that it's obviously it's not him. It's just such a wild moment to see this spirit, this hologram, this thing. And he calls out Coachella. He says, he says, what's up, Coachella? Like Coachella wasn't even a thing when Tupac was alive. So there's I don't know how they did that with him. I don't know how they did that with his voice, but yes, yeah, very, very, very science fiction-y kind of thing. So just to rewind, can you explain to our listeners what exactly happened? I guess Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg were performing. Before they came out, Tupac appeared on stage. <laughs> and there was, I guess, a song, a brooding kind of sound, the beginning of a song or just background music. And he starts talking to Coachella. And then he trades off lines with Snoop and Dr. Dre. like, And they're talking to him like he's there. And so it's very, very, very weird. I have chills just talking about it. Just very weird presence. <laughs> Very science fiction, very futuristic kind of presence. He's a hologram, right? They call it a hologram. It's a, it's what's called a Pepper's ghost. It's a, an old trick from theater days. 
I have to say, for a music genre so born from the streets and everyday life, it seems a bit ironic or disappointing, fake. I, I don't know. I know, you know, the company I worked with did a lot of Frank Zappa's music, and that he's been somebody that they've had these tours supposedly rumored to have. And, you know, there's a lot of feelings both ways, backlash and, well, I never got to see him, and that'd be kind of cool. And it just seems within the, well, for me, any live music, it's taboo. Yeah, it's very, very weird. I don't know how to parse all the issues because it's more, it's more than just being, <laughs> it's more than just ironic or fake. It's, it's strange because it's eerie. It's like, and it could be considered very disrespectful. There's no way he could have had anything to do with it. It was 25 years after he died. Who knows how he would have felt about that? Right. Very strange. Chief Keith weirdly has used the hologram in far more interesting ways. He's from Chicago, but he had a, he had warrants out for his arrest in Chicago. And he was trying to do this benefit show for a friend of his who had died and for the family, And he, but he couldn't come. So he was going to appear as a hologram. And then the mayor of Chicago wouldn't let him do it. And so he did the same thing at a festival in Indiana. And then they shut that down after he did one song. But to me, that's way, it's way more cyberpunk to be using a hologram to get around the law <laughs> than it is just to, <laughs> to surprise a bunch of white people at Coachella. <laughs> You know, more recently, Blade Runner 2049 features broken holograms of Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra performing in a decimated Vegas casino. That sounds a bit disrespectful. And you write that it wasn't the most forward-thinking use of these virtual presences. Is that the same kind of thing? Yeah, that's that's why I was referencing Chief Keith because to me that was the way he used, was using them is forward-thinking because it's, you know, being able to to show up somewhere where you can't when you're still alive is much more forward thinking than trying to bring back all our dead heroes, Tupac, be they Tupac or Elvis or Sinatra. Way more gangster too. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's the other aspect of it, right? So you write that 30 years is the widely accepted amount of time it takes for the world to change hands. Where are we musically speaking? This is so... So weird. It's a very hard question. That 30-year span goes all the way back to Heraclitus, Greek dude who came up with the idea of 30 years being the time it takes. And it's still been kind of the accepted shift. I think the cycles have gotten shorter, but also longer and also overlapping. And also like, it's getting harder and harder to make a kind of a determination, especially a generational determination. So right now, like there are several other things happening as well um, with music. There's the generational thing, and but there's also a thing that's happening with kind of the, the infrastructure of the, the media and the distribution that we use for music that has splintered it even further. If you say you're of Generation X or you say you're Generation Z or what, the cutoffs keep changing for, for what's considered which generation. The best example I can use of the media splintering is 25 years ago, if you'd ask someone what their favorite show was, it would have been Seinfeld or Friends, right? If you ask them now, you get 30 different answers. You still get friends, right? Sometimes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, the platforms have split up so much that there's not so much of a mainstream anymore. The, the new metaphor is not streams, it's lanes, right? Everybody has their own lane they're in. And so there's not a lot of crossover between things. So if you and I are watching ABC, we're watching one of the old monolithic broadcast networks, we're watching the same thing. If you and I are on Instagram, there's no telling what, right. there might be nothing the same 
right? And that's true for everyone. So there used to be this thing where, you know, everybody was kind of unified somewhat by the media that they watched or listened to. And now there's none of that. There's hardly any kind of connection between these things because there's so many different platforms, so many different genres. So musically, the generational thing is mashed up in a, in a weird way that Heraclitus, of course, would have never, <laughs> never been able to predict. But also the, the infrastructure of the media and the dis- distribution itself is, has mixed it all up in another way. This is the next book I'm working on. It's kind of part of it is about that. It is a fascinating kind of subtopic because I think radio used to be the unifier. Right. And music as a whole was much more of a group or community experience. I think now it's much more of a singular experience. You don't share records. You know, the, the hand-me-down stuff, it's interesting because I think people discover a lot on their own, but the media is changing and, and not everything gets updated. So there's maybe less choices for the past. One of the last lines in your book reads, we're not passing the torch, we're torching the past. And that seems to sum up what we just spoke about. There's this aspect of hip-hop that always kind of struck me as, it's made up of pieces of the past, but there's a, a singularity to me, or there's this, this huge break when you start not adding on with your own playing instruments and building in the tradition, but you're taking that tradition and you're remixing it or building something new out of it, using what was already there. There's a break there that to me is like an end of the past and something new starting. That was the, my poetic line. It's a good line. It's a good line. Well, this is Roy Christopher. His book is Dead Precedence, How Hip-Hop Defines the Future. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Roy. It was a great read. I had to put it down and kind of let my brain relax a little bit. It's very deep, but it's, it's just a fascinating study of a lot of things. And hopefully we've covered some of them today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Roy. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. And you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
Pantheon.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.